of, um, first of all, we are in Ephesians chapter five. And for the purposes of our recording, we had a email to this effect earlier in the week, but we're going to talk a little bit about sex today, people. So just, you know, he, he, um, be ready. Um, the Bible does talk about it and it's important that we talk about it in the right way and think about it in the right way. So if you happen to be catching this in a recorded form, um, and you're a parent, you might want to think of that a little bit as we get into these t- topics, might raise some fun questions from your kiddos. So just be prepared for that. So if you may remember from a few weeks back when I was last teaching in Ephesians, um, I put in very fine print in the things to consider notes at the very end of the, of the sermon notes, this little question. Pretend for a moment that you are an unbeliever. What are some concrete things that you might observe in the day-to-day life of a Christian neighbor that would make you take notice? How are they different, that is your Christian neighbor, from a neighbor who's just committed to being a good person? How many of you took some time to actually look at that question? Uh Uh-huh, thought so. I want you all to consider that because it's really easy to just go with the flow. But if we do that, if all our neighbors know about us is that we're good people, then something's missing. See, the life of a believer should be different. Not obnoxiously different, but lovingly different. I believe Paul is challenging us in today's passage to proactively stand firm in Christ against sin. And that is as much about thoughtfully modeling Christ as it is about resisting temptation. And with that, let's get into Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, 
and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Let's pray. Father God, we long to share the love that we have found in Christ with others. We long for them to see Christ in us and how we live our lives. We pray this morning as we study these words from Paul that you've inspired by your Holy Spirit, that they would sink deeply in our hearts and change us, that people would see a difference in how we live and come to know that that difference is Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul starts off with one of those lovely connecting words, therefore. And so we need to consider what he's referring to in the preceding verses. Interestingly enough, the preceding verse verses also contain a few therefores, which keep referring us back to earlier statements. But what Paul seems to be referring to can be summed up from two statements way back in chapter two. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Mm. Let's savor that. By grace, you've been saved. We were dead. So dead, we didn't even realize we were dead. We who are in Christ now are now alive, alive because of Christ. We should celebrate that, folks. Not only should we celebrate, but Paul is challenging us to be proactive in living out our faith. Be imitators of God. Now you're probably thinking, Wolf, I barely got here this morning. I'm feeling grumpy. How am I supposed to be an imitator of God, right? Well, Paul already answered that back in chapter 3. You may remember Josh pointed this out in Ephesians 3.16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Hmm, pretty cool. Not only does he not leave us dead in our sins, but he gives us all of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, to equip and empower us to be imitators of God. Now, being an imitator of God means that you have a proactive role to play in conducting your life so as to reflect God's character. In other words, be deliberate and thoughtful about what you do so that God is on display and glorified by your life. Scripture is, of course, our best source for understanding God's character. It gives us glimpses of him so that we know what such a life should look like. And of course, you can find the Cliff Notes version of that in the Gospels, as you read about how Jesus conducted 
himself. And Jesus himself, quoting from the Old Testament, gives the most succinct description, which can be simply stated, love God and love your neighbor. That underlying theme seems to permeate this book. We heard Jason speak about it a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it's important. Now, many times in life, we find ourselves in a reactive mode. We seem to spend much time responding to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And you can't plan for every circumstance that you may encounter. I'm sure most of us know that. However, with some proactive planning, you can be better prepared to either avoid or minimize the disruption and damage of some of those circumstances. And while true generally, it's all the more true spiritually. See, the more we proactively prepare our hearts to face the temptations of the world through prayer and Bible study, the better prepared we will be to respond to them in a godly way as imitators of God. Now, Paul concludes that opening statement with this little phrase, as beloved children. Now, as many of you have experienced, one of the profound moments of parenting is watching a child imitate one of your behaviors. Hopefully they're imitating a good behavior, but you get the picture. And Paul's drawing our attention to that often experienced picture of a much-loved child imitating their parent to bring this point to ground. Paul continues his call to being proactive with this. And walk in love, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, hopefully you recognize that this is similar to what we heard in chapter four. I believe Paul started out with the proactive perspective for two reasons. First, when you're actively filling your life with the things of God, there's less opportunity to sin or even be tempted to sin. Second, the, verse, the verses that follow will list out a great number of sins to avoid. And taken without that proactive call to imitate God and walk in love, obeying that list can easily turn into a works-based legalistic exercise. It's one that Satan loves to use to drive us away from God through feelings of guilt when we fail in any of these areas. Still, we need to know what is sinful in God's eyes so that we can avoid that sin. And this is especially true because what God considers sin may not be thought of as bad in the world where you are. You know, if this is certainly true of the Ephesians, right? They lived in a, in a city where the worship of Diana, or sometimes known as Artemis, depending on your translation, involved things like temple prostitutes. Now, it's easy for us to use love to justify any number of harmful behaviors. As an example, think of the busybody who makes it their business to be in everybody's business and ends up doing more harm than good because they pass judgment without having all the facts or spread gossip or any number of other hurtful things. 
But from the perspective of the busybody, they were acting in love for the other person. But from the perspective of the other person, that love feels more like hate. And that's why we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. In other words, we're to proactively let what we know of Christ's love be our guide for how to love others. I'd suggest that we all be regular readers of the four gospels because that helps to remind ourselves of just what that love looks like. Now, Paul being Paul gives us a quick reminder of two of the more important expressions of God's love that he gave himself up for us and that he gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, it should sound familiar to us that walking in love means sacrificing for others. Kurt pointed this out as we looked at the first half of chapter 4. Paul expands upon that notion here because it isn't just about sacrificing for others. See, our motives, our heart attitude for making the sacrifice should be to please God. Many of us have no doubt encountered folks who sacrificed for others, but did so in a way that somehow gained them notoriety or attention. Well, consider Jesus's words. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what is in view here is proactively looking for ways to sacrifice for others without ulterior motives. Hard to do. But Paul's reference to the fragrant offering implies that there is more to this than just sacrificing for others without looking for recognition. See, remember that in the Jewish laws, the sacrificial animals were to be pure and unblemished. The crops were to be the best of the first harvested produce. And one would expect that the Ephesian sacrifices to Diana would have also been the best of the best to try to garner favor from a lifeless statue. In other words, the Ephesians would have understood Paul's turn of phrase as much as the Jews. The idea here is that we're to proactively live a life that is pleasing to God so that there will be no question that our sacrifices for others are done for God's glory and not our own. This is consistent with Old Testament teachings about sacrifices from 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. 
Again, an often quoted verse, Micah 6, verses 7 and 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Active things to be doing. Paul then pivots to teach us what walking in love as a fragrant sacrifice is not. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It seems that not much has changed as we still wrestle with these same things today. But let's take a closer look at what Paul's saying here. First, he calls out sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. I believe his linking of these three is very intentional. And he begins with sexual immorality. This would seem the most obvious sin. Why? Because if you ask a cross-section of people to define sexual immorality, you will probably get a range of answers ranging from rape to premarital sex. These are all acts with significant consequences. However, if you were to condense the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality, it would encompass any activities of a sexual nature which occur outside the bonds of a biblically defined marriage. And while that would seem to cover a lot of ground, most of us know there's a continuum of human interactions between the purely platonic and the intimately romantic. It's easy to get lost in. Am I right? I know I had trouble with that when I was younger. Right? There are hugs and then there are hugs. Right? There are kisses and then there are kisses. I mean, come on. But see, there's more to it than just direct interactions with between people. And that's where Paul's caution about all impurity comes in. See, if your thought life is obsessing over and excessively prioritizing things of a sexual nature, I believe Paul would equate that to impurity. I will even go so far as to say that impurity can even occur in marriage when someone prioritizes sex over their spouse. Impurity or impure thoughts shares much similarity with Paul's third marker, covetousness. If your desire has reached the point where you're obsessing over something or someone, you've stepped into the realm of sin. Listen to Matthew 5 on this. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And ladies, don't think you're off the hook here because Jesus directed this at men. The principle applies to everybody. But notice that these three are linked because there's a progression that leads from coveting and impure thoughts to actual acts of sexual immorality. Now, while all these are sinful, the further down the road, this road you find yourself, the more people are hurt by your sin. If you don't believe me, then be sure to listen to Kurt's sermon coming up about pornography and sexual addiction. See, the bottom line is this. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness are all very common in the world. When you put them aside, you're proactively loving God and loving your neighbor. And because these things are so common, it's noticeable when you put them aside. Why? Because these three things set up barriers to relationships. Think about it. It's hard to have a real conversation with someone if your mind is filled with impure thoughts toward them. Many people get stuck coveting somebody from afar instead of just engaging with them to find out what they're really like as a person. And know that there's a difference between taking an interest in and coveting someone. See, with coveting, there's an obsessive component to it, which elevates the created above the creator in the heart. And that, folks, is idolatry. Paul makes that clear in verse 5. Things get even messier as you slide into sexual immorality. Folks, that's why Paul says that these things must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Sexual sin is so common and so damaging that eliminating it among believers is to be a priority. Note that his call for it is to not be present, not at all, in the church. And I would suggest that there's more to this call than just eliminating sin and looking different than the world. See, in verse 11, Paul calls these things unfruitful. See, if the church is distracted internally by sexual sin, it's not going to be able to focus on sharing the gospel externally. Worse, it gives the world an excuse to accuse the church of hypocrisy while leaving behind a trail of hurt and damaged people. A lot of impacts here, folks. Paul continues illustrating how we can be proactive in walking in love. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, I hope it's pretty obvious what kind of behavior and talk Paul is referring to here. See, in keeping with the previous verse, he's mostly referring to behaviors and talk that degrade humans with an inappropriate focus on sex or human bodily functions or something similar. I think we can all figure that out. So let me give you a, a few stories of the impacts here. When I was in college, I was an engineering student. So lots of 
weighty classes. I remember one afternoon leaving a physics class and a lot of us had the same type of classes. So myself and some of my other engineering track people were walking from a physics class to a math class. So we're walking down campus in the quad and a couple of the guys from class were just ahead of us. And they were, they saw an attractive woman. They whistled at her, made some remarks that are inappropriate to repeat. You, you just shake your head and go, what is that? A couple weeks later, those same guys showed up in my youth group at church. How much worse is that when these guys are claiming Christ? Now, ladies, if you're comfortable doing so, uh, I'd like to illustrate something here. If you're comfortable doing so, raise your hand if you've, you have ever had somebody make an inappropriate remark about your appearance or look you over like a piece of meat instead of a human being. Show of hands. Guys, be paying attention here. This isn't right. I'd be willing to bet that every one of you who put your hand up would say it's hurtful, embarrassing, and demeaning to have that directed at you. It's behavior and talk that tears down instead of builds up. It dishonors instead of honors. It builds walls instead of tearing them down. It trivializes things that are beautiful and significant in God's kingdom. But guess what? Paul gives us a proactive antidote to such worldly ways. Thanksgiving. See, if we're busy focusing on things to praise God for, especially in other people created in his image, we're less likely to slip into these old habits which demean other image bearers. Think of it this way. What kind of environment would you rather be in? One that is full of genuine thanksgiving? Or one that is full of filthy and foolish and crude talk and behavior that will inevitably be directed at you? Would you rather hear the gospel from somebody who demeans God's creation or somebody who honors it? See, Paul offers a similar thought to the Philippian church in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's again, it's about looking different from the world. Let's continue on in Ephesians. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. 
For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but thinking about God's standards and some of my past sins in an initial reading of this verse makes me feel just a little bit uncomfortable. But thinking about the broader context here, this kind of sexual ethic was way different than what people were used to. And there was a temptation to try to take the good parts of Christianity without giving up those old sexual practices. Then as now, there are people who try to do just that and convince others that it was okay to do so. Paul says, don't do that. Those old ways aren't compatible with the kingdom of God and are deserving of punishment. Paul isn't saying that if you slip up in this area, you're out of the kingdom. What is implied here is that if you continue unrepentant in these practices, you may not be saved in the first place. The other danger highlighted here is for believers struggling with those old habits or even sexual addictions. For them, someone pushing a religion or a worldview that allows loose sexual ethics might actually be appealing. But such a religion would be empty because it isn't God-honoring. We're to avoid such things so as not to get pulled back into those sinful practices that we were saved from. So we've been talking about the negative. Paul's going to pivot back here to what proactively living in love should look like, just like we started with. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, one of the dangers in an individualistic society like ours is that we don't realize the impact our lives have on others. But our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers, they're all observing how we live. And that gets back to my question from earlier. What is different about how a Christian lives than an atheist who's being a really good person? To be frank, I've observed atheists who've exhibited more compassion, care, and consistency in doing good than some Christians. That is incredibly sad. Many times we act passively or reactively in our Christian walks, just moving through life without much thought, praying for forgiveness when we mess up, or praying for help when we're in trouble. How about proactively praying not to sin, proactively praying to avoid trouble? How about this? Mr. Valdez will appreciate proactively praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Friends, we are flag bearers for Christ. We represent Christ to the world. If we're not thinking proactively about how to do that, we won't do it. We default to the comfort of the status quo. So how do we do that? Paul tells us, we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord in any given situation. You're at the grocery store. Someone sneaks into that parking spot you've been waiting for. How do you react? 
Are you going to yell and gesture angrily at that person for violating your right to that parking spot? Would that be pleasing to the Lord? Do we smile and smugly wish them a nice day? Would that be pleasing to the Lord? Or do we take a moment, think about how best to glorify God in this situation? Hmm. And perhaps that means just simply praying for that person because maybe they're having a bad day. Being thoughtful, folks. Now, I haven't forgotten Paul's interjection here. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And what seems to be in view is the idea that anyone who observes us should be able to say of us that our lives are good and right and true. But there's more implied in the statement because that little word all, all is hidden in there. So let's say you're slinging mashed potatoes at the rescue mission. Okay, right next to you is an atheist. That atheist is there handing out the dinner rolls. Good is being done, and the fruit of light is being found in both actions. The atheists won't admit it, but they're made in the image of God, and the good they are doing is actually a fruit of light from that image being worked through them. And that also may make a good point of connection for sharing the gospel with them over that shared interest in helping those being served by the rescue mission. Hmm. Paul continues, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. When scripture talks about fruitful works, it's typically referring to actions that glorify God and serve to spread the gospel. The good and right and true things done by the children of light. That's us, folks. Now, to help distinguish the Christian from the good person, Paul cautions us to not participate in activities that don't glorify God and serve in some fashion to spread the gospel. Now, please don't take this to the extreme. Okay? Don't argue that going to the grocery store doesn't glorify God. Paul's talking about things that are specific works of darkness. You see, that atheist at the rescue mission, he may be doing good at the mission, but then he may invite you over to get drunk and watch porn afterwards when you're done with your shift. How do you respond? Sorry, dude, I can't do that. And here's why. See, when you respond like that, that's taking no part and it's exposing the darkness. Now, as Bill pointed out last week, not every work of darkness is that obvious. There are things like social media or video games or hobbies or even money that are essentially neutral in and of themselves. But even those things can be works of darkness 
if they become too much of a distraction and pull us, pull away our focus from what is good and right and true, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the slow drift that Bill warned us about. And see, one of the problems with sin, especially the sexual sin that Paul is emphasizing in this passage, is that it twists God's good and joyful and pleasurable designs for life into something that when viewed in the light is shameful. See, most of us feel awkward enough just having that birds and bees talk with the kids, right? Let alone try talking about some of the dehumanizing and damaging things that come up from unbiblical sexual practices. And it's not only shameful, but in most cases, it, is, it isn't helpful to talk about such things as it can lead weaker brothers or sisters into temptation. But here's the good news. When those unfruitful works of darkness are exposed, it's the first step toward repentance and helping stop the cancer of sin from spreading. So when we participate in exposing the works of darkness, we're helping spread the gospel by helping people recognize the damage done by sin. And the damage is usually far greater than Satan wants us to believe. I don't want to step on Kurt's message about pornography too much, but any of you who think that porn isn't a big deal had better make sure to listen to that sermon. You will be shocked and horrified at the damage it does. And if you aren't shocked and horrified, we have some deeper issues to talk about. But see, we can't leave it at just talking about the damage and danger of sin. See, once exposed, that sin needs to be cleansed and healed by the light of Christ. That emptied corner of the heart needs to be filled with the things of God. The light of Christ is indeed bringing the person who's dead in sin to life. See, Paul closes out this passage by again charging us to be proactive, to be wise, and to exa- actively examine how we are living our lives. So how do we do that? We've already talked about trying to discern what is pleasing to God. But how do we know what is pleasing to God? Not to be repetitive, but I'm going to point to those same means of grace that Bill did last week. And I'm particularly going to point to meditating on the Word of God. I point to that particularly because it requires two things. That we're actually reading God's Word, right? And that we're thinking deeply, deeply about how to apply it to our lives. See, if we simply read a passage, we may miss out on how it fits within the whole counsel of Scripture. And we may misapply it. You know, a few weeks ago, Jason's sermon covered Ephesians 4.24, right? Which speaks about putting on the new man. Jenny once heard this story. It was about a woman who used that phrase out of context. She used it to justify getting a divorce and pursuing a new husband. Don't do that. (laughs) That's not how you treat scripture. Friends, Paul isn't saying anything new here. And he isn't asking us to do anything that the Holy Spirit 
isn't capable of empowering us to do. See, as we proactively meditate on God's word and how he asks us to live, we'll be prepared to properly apply it as we encountered any number of difficult situations. Even situations that may not explicitly be covered in scripture. See, we can evaluate those according to the underlying principles in scripture. Remember that gets to the heart behind the action, which is a lot of what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. If I could give you a simple question to guide your thinking, it would be this, and it's going to sound familiar. As a citizen of God's kingdom, how can I best demonstrate love for God and love for my neighbor in this situation? You ask that question and think about it and pray about it. For those of you who may be struggling with some of the sins discussed today, there's hope. Romans 8.1 reminds us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As much as you're struggling to put those sins aside, and as much shame as you may feel about them, please let the light of Christ in. It's the only way to eliminate the darkness. That's all the more true for those who don't know Jesus as their personal Savior. No self-help book or 12-step process can truly fix what's wrong Only Christ can do that because it's a heart thing. For those who are believers, oftentimes in the church, there's a subliminal undercurrent that we're to present ourselves to our brothers and sisters as if everything's okay. That's hogwash. All of us, everybody, from time to time struggle with sin. And we aren't meant to struggle alone. Find someone in the body you trust and confess your struggle to them. And if you're the person that somebody's confessing to, be gracious. Scripture calls us to walk humbly beside that person. And I hope you've picked up as we've talked about this passage, folks, that Paul isn't talking about some legalistic formula for living a sin-free life. He's talking about a heart attitude. Let's return again to Ephesians 2. And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. That's our motivation, folks, right there. God's love for us. Thank you, Jason. If we truly understand the gift of life that we've been given and the love that we've been shown, then our hearts should be continually dwelling on ways to proactively be living lives that look different and are different from the world around us because of Christ, not for our glory, but for his. Let's pray. Father God, you have done so much for us. You've called us out of darkness. You've cleansed us of our sins. You're continually sanctifying us and drawing us closer to your heart. What a gift that is. 
We should be ever thankful for it. Understanding where we should be. We were dead. We're now alive. And Lord, there are so many people out there right now who need that same life, who need to understand that they are loved, that there is forgiveness of sins available. They need to see that difference in our lives so they can ask us about it, so we can tell them about it from a place of honesty and truth. That Christ can transform lives. That our words and our actions resemble that of Christ. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us do that, Lord. But we have to do some of that ourselves. We have to walk in it proactively. Consciously thinking about how to please you. How to show others your love. Help us to do that today. In Jesus' name. Amen.